Father, we thank you again for the gift of salvation that we enjoy through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of Scripture that has been preserved down through history and inscripturates and permanentizes the revelation that you gave centuries ago. And we ask that your Holy Spirit, who authored that text years ago, speak to our hearts and open them to the things that you would have us learn through Christ. Amen. Tonight you should have the handout in chapter 4. We're going to start moving into, next week we'll start moving into the next uh, great event in the uh, sequence that we're studying, which will be the exile. And at that point, things will change a little bit uh, because all these other events that we've studied, the era of Solomon, the decline of the kingdom, the, the rupture of the civil war basically in the, in the nation Israel, kingdoms in decline, all that had to do with stuff going on inside the nation Israel's political boundaries. It was all internal. When we get into the exile, um, we're going to see we're back in the world system again. We're back into the nations, into paganism. And the Jews will be turned out into this world system. So beginning with the exile, we're going to kind of revert uh, back to the theme that we left back in the days of Abraham when God called Abraham out from paganism and the Gentiles. So we're going to learn a lot about our own heritage, uh, why the world is shaping up the way it is, the political forces that are active even now in our own generation, why international communities act like they do, and so forth. Some of the themes behind the scenes. And it all started with... Uh, um, with a foreign minister, actually, of Iraq and Iran, who was Daniel. He was the, one of the few men who had been foreign ministers of two different countries. And God revealed to him, uh, as a high government official, uh, what was going on in history. Very unusual to have a divine viewpoint historical analysis. So that's what's coming up in the exile. And I mention that tonight because on page 55 of the handout, if you'd like to look ahead a little bit in reading, um, I would urge you to look particularly at Daniel chapter 2 because we'll be talking about Daniel chapter 2 uh, next week um, to get a little of the cultural flavor of what life was like in the exile. One of the classic books in the scripture is the book of Esther. Um, we won't get into the Ezekiel passage next time, but if you um, look at the first part of the book of Ezekiel and watch for his vision of the removal of the spirit from the temple. That's a critical portion of the Old Testament text. Most people don't even know it exists. And yet you'll see that it's, it plays a fundamental role in the way history starts to unfold beginning in the 5th century. So those are some things to just to look forward to in reading via in some new areas of the, of the Bible. Okay, tonight... Uh, we're on page 50 of the notes. And what we want to do is we want to pull together some of the uh, doctrinal truths that we have learned through this last event. Um, we spent a long time, seems like, on the kingdoms in decline, the role of the prophets, uh, and so on. But, again, looking at the big picture so we don't lose the forest for the trees here. All of these areas of history, from Solomon on down to the divided kingdom, on down to the decline of both the northern and southern kingdoms, all this period of history, some 800 years actually, uh, well, no, not 800 years, four, 500 years, 400 years, 800 years back to the time of Moses and uh, so on. But this whole period is basically concerned with the doctrine of sanctification, in other words, this is what's going on inside the kingdom of God. Why is this important? What ties together all these stories? Um, and this, again, we, we want to go in this class on Thursday nights, we're not going into the details, we're going into the th big themes. And so when you read these stories about what went on in Elisha's day, what went on in Nahum's day, what went on in Jonah's day, and so forth, plug it into this big picture. The big picture is how does the kingdom of God 
look like? What does it look like? How does God reign over His kingdom? And how God reigns over His kingdom teaches us more about His character and teaches us what pleases Him and what displeases Him as far as living today in a relationship with Him. So that's why all this history was preserved, story after story after story, to give hundreds and hundreds of different facets of how God reigns. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. We said that there are two basic models that the prophets critiqued. All men inside this kingdom were sinners. All men were fallen. Some men were born again and some men weren't in ancient Israel. And there are two models using the leaders as examples of how to, how to live. And one of them was David. And we said that David was a sinner. David got out of line. David was disciplined. David was a believer. But what characterized the David model is that he didn't have to get hit on the head with a two-by-four to realize that he'd sinned. He was sensitive to his own personal sin and what to do about it. And of course, the issue, once again, to review how to handle that process and how David handled it was he became convinced because the word convict, remember, we said, because that gets a little too religious in meaning, if you, if you get insensitive to the word convict, substitute another word for it, same meaning, convince. He became convinced of his sin. And he wasn't convinced because of peer pressure. You can't confess sin because of peer pressure. You can't confess sin because you think that if you don't, somebody's going to get you. You have to do it by faith. And to do it by faith, you have to be convinced of sin. And how you get convinced of sin? By referencing the Word of God. So, David knew the Word of God. He had it delivered to him in a special applied form by the prophet Nathan. He confessed his sin and he was restored to fellowship. Very simple model. Well, in contrast to that, you remember that in the rest of the kingdom, you had an extra step added in here, that first one. Because what happened as the kingdom began to decline was that people either did not believe in what was known of the gospel, so you had an increasing percent of people that were unregenerate, or the people who did believe were getting very sloppy about handling themselves spiritually. They lived in prolonged carnality, and the longer they lived in carnality, the more screwed up their soul became, and the more screwed up their soul became, the harder it was for them to be convinced of their sin. And, of course, there can't be any restoration until that step occurs. So what you, we have seen in these four or five centuries is just how severely God would chasten His people. And we said it's a destruction of mental strongholds, of demonic idolatries to clear the vision of who God really is. And that's the story of all the suffering that was going on in these centuries. There, it's there for a purpose. It's not there because God, like, it's a big thrill out of doing it. It's because God wants His people to come into fellowship with Him and He is serious enough about that to put us through some suffering to wake us up in order that it take place. So, that's how God reigns in His kingdom. Also, you'll note and remember from this time period, one of the problems that these people had as the kingdom began to decline, you see it a lot in the leadership, the thinking of the man, is they always trusted some human gimmick. It was always a foreign policy solution. It was always an economic solution. It was always some human-based gimmick that would ultimately solve their problems. And the prophets cried again and again, every time you try a human solution to the problem, you're going to get yourself all bound up because God is going to allow you to solve the problem that way. He wants you to solve the problem by coming to Him and walking by faith. So if you've got some gimmick, be assured that it's going to be frustrating because He was not going to let us solve problems with gimmick solutions. And that was the whole story of those three or four centuries. One gimmick after another. We're going to do it this way. going to do it that way. Remember all of the illustrations that we had. We'll go through some of those tonight. But what we have come to now on page 50 is we're going to summarize in the next few pages 
the doctrine of sanctification, we've learned it before. We studied it a little bit in the conquest and settlement period. We studied it last year in the connection with David and, and in September. But we're going to do it under the same topics. If you notice on page 50, we have the phases of sanctification down at the bottom. On page 51, we have the aim of sanctification. Page 52, we have the means of sanctification. Page 52, we also have dimensions of sanctification. And on page 53, the enemies of sanctification. I've just kind of lumped them together into those five areas. Because each one of those involves a slightly different um, concept. So, we'll start tonight... Uh, with the phases of sanctification. If you look down the bottom of page 50, and we'll review that from what, what we have known in the past and the new information we're going to add to that understanding from the last four or five centuries of Israel's history. We said before there were two kinds of sanctification. Positional sanctification and experiential sanctification. Positional sanctification basically is that God puts me in a certain position with respect to Him and His plan. Now, we don't feel our way into that position. We don't earn our way into that position. That position is given to us by God's grace through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, Christ wasn't yet fully revealed, and so therefore the position came in through the Davidic covenant. So, this positional sanctification... By way of position is not related to our personal experience in the sense that it's derived from our personal experience. No experience we have walking with the Lord causes the position. The position causes the experience. It's not the other way around. And this is what is wrong when we try to use therapy and other kinds of solutions to personal problems because if it's our position before God that explains details of our life, then this is the thing we need to go back to. It's this position that gives meaning to the experience. That's the sequence. You can't go from experience back to position. You have to always go from position to experience. Example, Israel's history. Think of what we've learned. What was the great covenant that control the outlines of every event that ever happened to Israel. Abrahamic covenant. Promised a land, a seed, and a blessing. Now, was the seed involved during those eight centuries of time? Was there any historical evidences or passages of Scripture or dramatic events that took place that had something to do with the seed? Well, of course. From the little book of Ruth, you know, you store what what is a what is a Gentile woman, a short story, stuck in the middle of the Bible for? She's in the sea. She's part of the messianic sea. So that little book, that woman's life is defined not by Ruth, not by her mother, not by Boaz, it's defined by the Abrahamic covenant. That's the controlling document. So always remember that positional sanctification controls experience. Experience doesn't control position. Okay, so the, that was the positional sanctification. Now we went to experiential sanctification. Now the covenant, when we talk about experience now, proper, we're talking about the place where we obey or we disobey God. And now comes the will of God for us. And the Sinaitic Covenant gave, some people say, 610 plus commands of how to do, what to do, when to do, where to do. And that outlined the will of God for the people. So, in experiential sanctification, we have the issue of personal obedience and logging time in obedience versus logging time in status disobedience. So, it's the, it's the number of hours logged in obedient modes that strengthens, that builds, that sanctifies. So, that's the experience side. But always remember, the experience is defined by the position. Abraham defines Moses. Moses doesn't define Abraham. What we have now learned is there's a third phase of sanctification that was introduced by the prophets. 
because they understood that their history, their position, like we have our position in Christ, we have the experience of the filling of the Holy Spirit, but we still live, as Romans 8 says, with groanings that cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit makes intercession for us and we experience pain and sorrow and we look forward to the day of redemption. It's unfinished. We live in tension. We know this is our position. We look down at our experience, always find something short, always find failure of some place, always find discouragement, and the experience is never totally fulfilling in this Christian life. So, where's the resolution? The prophet said there will be such a thing as ultimate or final sanctification. And, of course, ultimate sanctification refers to things like the resurrection of the body, doing away with all sorrow, sickness, death, suffering, that sort of thing. And that's the grand finale. That's the conclusion. And the prophets in eschatology and prophecy speak of the fact that this position and experience will simultaneously occur together and they will both be perfectly in harmony. When experience is in harmony with position, that is ultimate sanctification. And it's never to be repeated again. It's over. History is over at that point. That's the great hope that grows out of the Old Testament. And it grew out of the Old Testament because of failure. It grew out of the Old Testament because of discouragement. It grew because of pain. And so God would send the ministering prophets and they begin to point down the road. And Jeremiah made that dramatic announcement of what? The new covenant. Let's hold a place in the notes on page 51 and go back to that table where we summarize the covenants on page 47 for a moment. The new covenant is a phase of ultimate sanctification for the nation. Remember we had the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, Sinaitic covenant, Davidic covenant. Then we had the new covenant. And the new covenant was given to Israel. And the legal terms of the new covenant as Jeremiah spoke of spoke them, was that, that there would be national regeneration. In other words, what does he mean by that? It means that 100% of the people in the nation Israel would be believers in the future. 100%. In Elisha's time, how many? Remember in the northern kingdom? God gave a number. He knew. He had a census. He knew how many people had trusted the Lord and how many didn't. Who were the real believers? Who were the phonies? 7,000. It, it was a status. It was a number count. So God says to Elijah, look, 7,000 people in the northern kingdom have believed. Many, many more thousands haven't believed. But I tell you, then he looked forward to the future through the other prophets and said, there will come a time, O Israel, when everyone in the nation will be a believer. That's ultimate sanctification. And when that takes place, the Messiah will return and it's the whole kingdom of God and so forth. So there are three phases of sanctification. We don't live in ultimate sanctification, in case you haven't noticed. And it's a future hope. And this is the role of the prophetic books. So many people look upon prophecy as, you know, where's the U.S. In, in the book of Daniel or something? That's not the point. The point of prophecy is to help us endure the present by knowing how the drama finally ends. You know what's going to happen in the story because you read the last chapter. That's why the prophetic books are given this, to give this as a hope. But always remember that experience is sandwiched in between the position that God outlined from eternity past. God had a plan for you, for me, for the nation of Israel, for the church, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and He knew that forever and ever backwards. And he revealed that in the Abrahamic covenant and, of course, through Christ. So we have a position, a position that's nailed down from eternity past to eternity future. That's our stability. Our experience derives from that and is anchored to that position. But nothing in our lives can take away that position. That's what Paul argues in Romans 8. You know, we cannot be separated from the love of Christ by anything, come hell or high water. Nothing can separate us from that position. So that's the power of knowing about the, our position in Christ. The new covenant, on the other hand, looks forward to the future, to ultimate sanctification. So that's, those are the three phases of sanctification. And just remember those three phases. So when you talk about a Bible passage, what you want to do now is here's three questions you can ask of the text. 
when you're in a New Testament passage or an Old Testament passage, ask yourself, if it's talking about some area of the Christian life, ask yourself, is this, what, what phase of sanctification are we talking about here? A little test. Take, the, um, take your Bibles and look at Ephesians a moment. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. To get these categories right. It helps you understand why things are the way they are in some of these epistles. When you start out in Ephesians chapter 1, back in the days when people knew how to diagram sentences, it was Christians used to have a neat exercise. I remember um, many, many years ago, uh, I knew a Christian teacher, and when she, she taught diagramming sentences, subject, predicate, verb. Um, we used to have the, the subject and the sentence, and we used to draw this little diagram, and we have the verb, and then we'd have the predicate and all the direct objects and everything and make this big, big, long diagram. Well, what this teacher used to do is, with all due respect to the lawyers in the Supreme Court, she used to go to Ephesians chapter 1, and she said, I would like to give you an assignment to find out where the sentence ends that starts in verse 3. Now, you try that, and it is one humdinger of a sentence to outline. And if you do it right, it'll probably take about three sheets of 8.5 by 11 paper, all skewed off to the right before you get to the end of the thing. And what that shows you is what a, in many ways, convoluted guy Paul was when he went to teach. I mean, you talk about a guy maybe a little hard to follow. This guy was so bubbling over with the depth of the knowledge that he had of God that it just came out all over the plate. And when he started the sentence, he didn't even finish it. He just kept on going, 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 going. So, as you look at this sentence that starts in verse 3, ask yourself a simple question of the text. Train yourself to observe the text. This is how you get fruit uh, out of the text of the Scriptures, how you get food from the text. is by bombarding the text with questions. Because you're really dialoguing with the Lord. He wrote the text. Holy Spirit indwells you. And so the Holy Spirit wrote the text. So if he indwells you, he ought to be able to show you insights into the text. But you have to dialogue with him. He's not going to... Holy Spirit's going to have a problem with TV minds. Because TV minds are looking for some wham-bang, bells and whistles, and all kinds of color going on. And the Holy Spirit didn't put the Bible on television. He wrote it. And that means that it takes a certain quietness a certain reflectivity, and an active mind. Active mind, not passive. You, if you do a temperature on your own thinking processes, you, you ever notice, when is it that you want to go to see the television? It's when you're tired, mentally. Well, that tells you right away it doesn't require much energy to sit there and receive light and sound. Problem is, you're not receiving content. And the Word of God is contentful. And we, as Christians today, we are struggling to maintain literacy, folks. That's where it's at. Now, I don't mean formal literacy. We, you know, everybody can read signs and billboards. I'm talking about comprehending what we read. That is a battle. And we have to pray for our children because they are not being encouraged to delve into content and be active mentally. They're encouraged far to be passive. Fuzzy math. What did three birds sitting on a fence do when two went away? How did they feel? This is the new math that we are approaching. So don't bother and think about the fact it's three and two. Worry about what went on in the bird brain somewhere about when one of them flew away. And then, with all that background, oh, by the way, come to Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, verse 3, and understand the sentence. You see, there's a big gap going on here. And this is why we have a lot of weakness in our own Christian circles. We, we haven't even come to grips with the text because we aren't mentally equipped to come to grips with the text. Well, in this text, as we start, think of these questions. Three phases of sanctification. Positional, experiential, or ultimate. Now, as you start in verse 3, just skim down verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and ask yourself the question, which phase of sanctification is Paul talking about in those verses? Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestinated us to be adoption. What's the emphasis here? 
position. It's all position. Now, isn't that interesting that when you start going through the text further, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, you start reading chapter 4 and he talks about one body, one spirit. Um, then he begins to say in verse 21 of chapter 4, if indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just the truth is in Jesus, lay aside the old self. Now what is he talking about? Experience. Which comes first in the text. Position first, then experience. You see why psychotherapy has got it backwards? Psychotherapy today is trying to analyze experience in the light of some model, what was ever taught by Dr. So-and-so in the latest graduate school course. And that, then you're always analyzing experience in the light of this model. Where did the model come from? This is the model. So we as Christians have to go back to the Scriptures and find the model, the background, and the position. You'll also note that Paul speaks of the future in chapter 1. You'll notice how he says... He has made known the mystery of the will and so forth and so on. Um, verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestinated according to His purpose, works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who are first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. See where it says, should be to the praise of His glory? That's the end of the plan. What's that? Ultimate, positional, or experiential? It's ultimate. Okay? So, here's how to take those three phases of sanctification and use them as uh, devices and tools to analyze the text as you read it. Okay, going back to the notes then. We come to the second major area of sanctification. And we want to zero in. These are all related. You can't separate them. They're not airtight one from another. But the aim of sanctification. Now, in God's sight, of course, it's the glorification of Him. But when we talk about aim in this context, we're talking about as far as we as creatures ago. Now, I drew a little diagram there. Here, it's a repeat of the one that we did in the second version of this pamphlet. And I want you to look carefully at that diagram and visualize Adam on the left side. See where it says, before the fall. There's a point here that we want to remember. Sanctification preceded the fall. Now, this requires a little bit of analysis. So, let me um, get out that slide that we inevitably fall back on. You can find it. Let's go back to our diagram about good and evil. I want to notice something here. What, was God, what did God tell the first man he made? He gave him duties, didn't he? Have dominion over the earth. Rule it wisely. Um, take care of the Garden of Eden. Remember? He had all these different things that he had to do. Now, was that obedience or disobedience? Well, it was obedience. Now, where was that? It was back here, prior to the fall. Was there an issue of experiential sanctification prior the, to the fall? Yes, there was. What was it? It was to develop historical loyalty to God. Adam and Eve did not come made with historical loyalty to God. They came with a potential for loyalty to God. They were sinless people. But just because they were sinless people did not mean they did not have to go through a process of choosing, of exercising their chooser in history. And that was what the test was. And the test was given prior to the fall. Now when we come into the New Testament, if you turn the book of Hebrews for a moment, we turn to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we notice a peculiar uh, verse here. In Hebrews chapter 2, and also we will look at um, 
Hebrews uh, chapter 5, but first chapter 2. Verse 10, Hebrews chapter 2. Now this is talking about a sinless person. Okay? No evil, no sin nature. He hasn't sinned. But in verse 10 it says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Does that mean that Jesus had to be perfected? Yes. Well, does that mean he was imperfect in the sense he was a sinner? No. It means that he was in a sort of um, state like Adam and Eve were. They were potentially righteous, but they had to exercise choosers in actual real history. And Jesus had to. Jesus grew spiritually by his obedience. Chapter 5, verse 8. Notice this one. Even though he is sinless, though he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Learned. But he's God and man. Why does he have to learn? He has to learn because the destiny of man is to generate historic obedience to God. The aim is always to develop loyalty, and loyalty doesn't come instinctively. It comes by exercise. So the point is that in this aim of sanctification... We have the ultimate goal is for us to develop this loyalty to God. We'll call that obedience, whatever you want. I just use the word loyalty because it fits the Old Testament a little bit better. <clears throat> loyalty to God, which equals righteousness. That's what the word righteousness means. And this is why we are going to be judged. Believers will be judged in the Bema seat. Unbelievers will be judged, the great white throne. But every person will be judged. Why is there a judgment in the future to all of us? And why is the judgment about our works? The judgment is to produce value, to assign value to the righteousness that we showed in history. There is a judgment and it is based on works works born of faith, and also for the non-Christian, works born of unbelief. But you look at this text and it's talking about being judged. Well, what's the judgment all about? Again, the judgment is to put a value on this, loyalty to God. God thinks enough of this that he assigns a value to it, and that's what the judging is all about. And he would have done that to Adam and Eve, and he did that to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus' righteousness that he generated was exchanged, as we said last week, and, and applied to us. That's where we get our position from, His righteousness. If Jesus had disobeyed, there wouldn't have been any righteousness to impute to us. The righteousness that's imputed to us comes about only because the Lord Jesus Christ used His chooser correctly throughout all of His life. So He generated a perfect righteousness and proved the point that a member of the human race can meet the destiny originally created in Genesis 1. Jesus, as it were, is a test pilot. He took the, all the modus operandi that God had for man, put it through the ringer, faced Satan himself, and proved out God's program. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. He is the test pilot that pushed the envelope and proved that it works. So no man from that point forward can say that God's assets don't work. Well, Jesus proved it does work. He made the case that the human race was not a bad creation. He made the case that the Father knew what he was doing when he created man to do what he wanted man to do. All right, so that's the ultimate aim. Now, the diagram on page 51 shows that after the fall, sanctification is harder because of impediments of sin. But the process is no different. There's still a need for testing, for trials, for opportunities to disobey or opportunities to obey. And it doesn't go away after the fall. It becomes harder after the fall, but it, doesn't, it is not something that was created by the fall. Okay, the aim of sanctification then. And I give you some verses there. Psalm 8 is a great passage in the Old Testament. I'll show you that, that idea. Okay, now we come over 
page 52 on the notes, and I make a point, what do we learn that is new from this past uh, period of history? What has this helped us understand a little bit more about the aim of sanctification? After all, we talked about this last year. But what have we picked up now? What imagery do our minds have, our hearts have, of the Old Testament history that we've gone through on Thursday nights over the past several months? All right? Top of paragraph, page 52. When the Old Testament prophets revealed the new covenant in the kingdom period, they opened up powerful energy sources for developing a loyalty to God. The fact that God would not only save the nation from Egypt, but also save the nation from itself, showed clearly God's fantastic love. The fact that after the Sinaitic covenant had been conclusively shown to be broken, God would pursue his people for a final restoration revealing his incomprehensible grace. That's what's new out of this portion of the Old Testament. You would not know that if you did not have 2 Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Samuel, Nahum, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, etc., etc., etc. What those books give us is an added revelation of God's character so that we'll be motivated out of thankfulness, not out of fear. Love and thankfulness are far more potent motivators than fear of the stick. And that's what these prophets are giving us. The motivation comes about not from the Sinaitic covenant where cursing, cursing, cursing if you disobey, but the motivation is, Israel, I love you. You, you are like a woman who's gone out and committed adultery. I welcome you back to my home and to my bed. That's the God of the Old Testament. That's how he feels it at this period of time in history. So, it gives this powerful thing, and I've summarized it was gratitude. Gratitude grows as revelation grows. You cannot look at how God operates in history without increased gratitude. And that gratitude itself becomes a motive power to live the Christian life. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And it's hard to give thanks, and that's the quickest barometer to know where you stand spiritually. My wife has done a lot of counseling with people and all kinds of problems, and one of the first questions she always asks is, have you given thanks? Duh. And, you know, if you get that answer, well, that's, that's like taking the temperature. Just like the doctor sticks the thing in your mouth, checks it out. Well, have you given thanks? That's a spiritual thermometer because that tells you right away what's going on in your spirit. Don't have to go in any profound analysis. Don't have to have a THD. Just do that simple test. Okay, next on page 52, we come to the tools that God uses in sanctification. We want to understand these tools because in the history of the church, these tools have been covered up and Satan loves to confuse Christians about these tools. He loves to divert attention away from these tools or have us think that these tools are insufficient and we always need something else in addition to these tools. What are the tools? The Word of God and the Spirit of God. The means of sanctification. One was law in the sense of revelation and the other was God's grace. No one can believe apart from the Word of God or revealed law. No matter how hard you try, you cannot work up faith. And I'm sure you've all struggled, as I have in my family, with unbelievers in your home, unbelievers in your immediate family. You sit there and you, you know, do your best to witness and you do, oh, it just goes off. And you just get so discouraged after a while. You know, what does it take? Peer pressure won't do it. Nagging won't do it. Arranging all kinds of little deals won't do it. The only guy that's good at arranging deals is God. And he has some whoppers. Totally unexpected moves on the chessboard. And we have to let him have that. Because until a heart is open to content and truth, you cannot believe, can't believe, it's a revelatory thing that has to happen, and it's a supernatural thing that has to happen. The best thing we can do is live a life that, that brings some glory to God, at least, in the vicinity as a testimony. 
And the other thing is, whenever we do speak the gospel, is try to be as clear as you possibly can and avoid false issues. Try to major on the center of the gospel because it's that that has to be understood. The rest will come. But until the gospel crashes in, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and nothing else. Not the word of men, not a lot of sermonettes, not book reviews. It's going to be the word of God that gives people clarity. Okay, so that's number one thing. And I point out in that paragraph, under the guidance of the Spirit, the prophets... Uh, let, me, let me read the second sentence there in that passage. Thus, the Old Testament prophets again and again critique the nation on the basis of Moses' words. Underline that. That we've watched four centuries of the prophets. How did they operate? When they came to a military crisis, did they say, gee, what was Course 101 in military tactics at West Point? They didn't go to that. That was important, but that wasn't why it was happening. Gee, we forgot Milton Friedman's course on capitalism at the University of Chicago. Or, gee, we forgot our, our history or something. What they emphasized was the words of Moses. And I could add, by words of Moses, we mean all five books, not just the law of Sinai. So, they needed, they critiqued on the basis of the word of God. Now, let's think about, let's pull out into the margin right there in that sentence and think about something. If the prophets critiqued on the basis of Moses' words, how should we approach our problems? When we critique our lives and we try to seek what is going on in this situation, where do we go? We go to the same source, the Word of God. And you may say, well, gee, I don't know that much about the Word. Well, use what you do know. And the amazing thing is, the more you use it, the better you know it. So, you can't use ignorance as an excuse. Everybody knows something. I mean, you couldn't be here and be saved and not know something of the Word of God. So, you start there. And you just keep building and building and building. So, that's number one. And I quote 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where the Apostle Paul, and I want you to turn there if you're unfamiliar with that text, because in our day, it's a big debate going on. It's going on in, Dal in seminaries right now. Certain classes that are training men for the ministry do not operationally believe this. In theory, they say so, but in practice, they don't. is people have a very diminished view of this. And I know why they do. Because number one, they probably never read it. You can tell that by looking at the book. You, you know, blow dust off of it on the shelf. You know, they never read it. But they're full of opinions about how crummy this book is. And all the errors in it. I get so tired of hearing all the errors in the Bible. Always hear that. Tell me something. What are they? Well, I read somewhere. Yeah, right. Try reading this first. So, the first problem is nobody reads it. And the second of all, we have TV minds that can't understand it when they do read it. So, with all that going for us, that's why the Bible appears to be an impotent, silly, peripheral piece of literature. It's peripheral because we're the ones that are peripheral, the human race. The second thing that God uses in sanctification is concept of grace. This is a hard one, and it tends to be harder in our own circles. Because after a while, you get so hard-nosed about the Scripture that you begin to drift into a kind of legalism that says, I can obey the Scripture with the energy of the flesh. Now, Mike on Sunday mornings is going through the, the Beatitudes. Well, one of the things that Jesus was trying to do there was to take the text of the Old Testament and explain it. Because by the time of Jesus, you had these Pharisees walking around. And these guys thought they knew the text, but they didn't know the text. They had a very trivial view of depravity of man. As the, as the um, Lazarus intrigue showed, the Pharisees very well played. They had this arrogant attitude that they knew more than anybody else that they were so good and everybody else was down there. 
So legalism always does that. Martin Luther had a great quote in his Epistle of Romans about, about legalism and grace. He said that the godly people, that are the real godly people, are more interested in their shortcomings than their neighbor's shortcomings. That's the mark of grace. It's very, very easy to get an attitude where, you know, compare my area of strength against Joe's area of weakness. I always come out on top, of course, because I don't dare get into the area where he's stronger than I am. So, legalism violates the grace principle. And we saw that, as we point out in the paragraph, again and again, the Old Testament prophets went back behind the Sinaitic Covenant. Remember, we, I mentioned this tension that went on in the prophets. We studied that in the, in the chapter. And I kept saying, tension, tension, tension. What tension? Tension between Moses saying, Israel, if you don't obey this, you're going to suffer with the fact that they were disobeying it. And yet God was promising a destiny, positive destiny for this country, and it's full of disobedient people. Tension, I said. What did the prophets do? The prophets came back and said, Israel, the only reason why you're still walking around is because of the promises to the fathers. Now, when they said that, what do they mean? Promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't go back to the Mosaic Law because remember we went through the Reeve proceeding, the lawsuit proceeding? Why did we do that? To show that on the basis of the law, they had sinned and the law was convicting them. They had no appeal in God's courtroom on the basis of that law code. They had to go behind the law code to the grace of the lawgiver. And that was a lesson learned, not just for New Testament times. That was learned in the Old Testament. Old Testament saints realized they were sinners in God's sight. None of them, remember last, night, last week, we went over, I gave you quotes out of the Old Testament, Psalm 143 quote, where they were, knew very well that standing in God's courtroom, they never could claim righteousness on the basis of obeyed law. They had to, when they faced God, realize that no man, including me, is justifiable in God's sight on the basis of obedience to the law. We all come short of the glory of God. So they had to cast themselves upon God's grace. God's grace. God's grace. So these are the means of sanctification. And if you can chart your own Christian experience you will see, if you, if you had half the time all day long, which you don't, but I'll bet you if we had the time and we could log down in a journal, everything going on in our lives, and then we look back on that journal, we would watch a kind of a swaying motion going on where for a while we would get over and we'd get absorbed the Word of God and things are going great, and then we'd start to get kind of a little arrogant and say, well, I know this and so forth, so therefore... And then, boom, we'd have a big disaster or something. And then we pick ourselves up and we come over here. Now we're walking on grace. And then we wander around out here for a while and get involved in kind of silly stuff because we didn't know what the Word told us to do. And so the Christian life is just kind of going between these two means. And we have to protect ourselves. These are the two key tools, grace and the Word of God. And a local church that honors those will be blessed. Okay, we come now to the last one we want to talk about tonight, and that's the dimensions of sanctification. We said that before, life has two dimensions. And we have to look again, because the Scriptures talk about these, and it doesn't put a label on them, so you can read and get off track a little bit. best way I know of describing it is think of growth. You can plot um, height of a child as he grows versus time. Okay, so there's spurts. Adolescence, like that. And um, so you have growth with time. Now, you can have, you looked at that curve, the microscope, you could see perhaps where there was some, some, not necessarily in the height situation, but just an overall physiological health, where you have declining health, periods of decline. It doesn't stay level. It goes up or it goes down. And that's the same spiritually. So we have to distinguish between the general trend, which is maturity, growth, versus what is happening in the moment. Am I obeying today or disobeying today? That's why the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, give us this day our daily bread. 
doesn't say give us tomorrow. I always want tomorrows, Fridays, Saturdays, two weeks from now. But all he ever gives me is today's. And that's because he wants the emphasis on now. I can't decide what's going to happen two weeks from now. I can only decide what's happening right now. We have a woman in our congregation that has a neat illustration. I want to just share this with you. Debbie Durham uh, has a neat way of expressing this. She has this, this idea that I think is very picturesque. She says, you walk into the moment. I don't know what that does for you and your imagination, but in my mind's eye, when Debbie said that, what it conjures up in my eye is a room. And I always think of, the, of a series of rooms. And you walk into the moment. You walk into this room. That's the present tense. And as we walk into the moment, that idea that we've walked from a room into another one, the next one, the next one, the next one, what's, what that does is if you think about time as a series of these rooms, present moments, and you're walking from one to the next one to the next one, what do we say is the attribute of God that corresponds to time? And we listed all the attributes of God. Well, the one that corresponds to time is that God is eternal. And what does that mean? It means He dwells in all moments of time. So, we're right here now, say, in this moment. God already is here in the next moment. He already has all kinds of assets there in that moment. He has the Word of God ready for us. He has His grace ready for us. He has some problems in there for testing in that room. But He's got all the furniture in that room before we walk into it. It's, he was always previous to us. So He's been there. He's arranged the furniture. He has the scene all set up, just like in the play. And they had each individual act. And the actors walked into the moment. They walked into the scene. Well, if we can visualize our lives as the same way, God sets the stage before we get there. And if we can just remember that when the stuff starts flying over in here... Now, wait a minute. That's part of the scenery. That's part of what He uh, has all set up in this room that I'm going through right now. And it isn't an accident. Because he thought about this moment before. In fact, God had all eternity to think about this moment. I, I, we were so busy back here, you know, our minds are going like this all over the place. And he has very calmly set up this moment. His promises are true. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that call according to his purpose. All that's setting up as sort of stable assets sitting in that room. And then, boom, we walk into it. And, you know, we see this stuff flying all over the place. And we don't stop and see the furniture. And the furniture is all the stuff he's provided for that one moment. Not for the next moment. When you go to the next act in the drama, remember how they used to, into stage, they changed everything. Paula was running up and down. Um, all, the, all the different stuff was being changed. And the, the room changes. We go to the next moment, it's a wholly different set of furniture, maybe. But it's the same God who's the playwright. It's the same God who set that scene, who wrote it into place, and we walk into it after he wrote it. So it's kind of a neat idea of, of bringing out the dimensions of sanctification. Well, if we go on page 53, we want to introduce what we learned about new about this. We learned a little bit about that last year when we were talking about the conquest and settlement. But what I want to do now is take us to some sobering passages of Scripture. In the New Testament that are analogous to the passages that we studied in the prophets where Israel was getting clobbered. So I've listed them in order in that paragraph on page 53, and it starts with Acts 5. And I think most of us are aware of Acts 5, but if you just turn there, we'll just highlight some of these verses. All of these verses pertain not to unbelievers, they pertain to believers. Verse 5 of Acts 5. Let's go to verse 3. Here we have a man and his wife who were in disobedience, evidently uh, were influenced by their peers, worried about how they might look among the group, not doing their giving or whatever they were doing as unto the Lord, but worried about what society thinks, what my peers think, what my parents think, what my children think, or what somebody else thinks. And they 
faked. They were trying to produce a phony work. It was a gimmick situation. Peter said, and I ask, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now think about what is implied. Do you know the word fill? We, that's the same word fill of the Holy Spirit used over in Ephesians 5. Wow. Do you see what this is saying? How far Satan can control a Christian? Powerful stuff here. Satan has filled the heart of a believer to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, verse 5, as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. That is God killing a believer in discipline. That can happen. Why? Is this strange? No, it isn't strange. Think of what we had just got through studying for 400 years in Israel's history. Destruction. Military invasion. Uh, uh, ravishing of the population. Killing the men. Raping the women. Taking prisoners of war. All this horrible stuff. People dying of starvation. Those were all God's people. And who was responsible for letting that happen? God was. But see... Go back to position over experience. What do you do? You don't go from experience to position. You don't argue, well, God's clobbering me, therefore, I'm not saved. That's going from experience to position. You go from position back down to experience. I'm getting clobbered. Why? Because I am a Christian. And He expects certain things of me, and I'm feeling the Father's rod. So therefore, that immediately suggests what the solution might possibly be. See? It's altogether different than going from experience back to position. We go from experience, we hop over to the position, then come back to experience. All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. Another Christian in the New Testament text. What we're looking at, folks, is the New Testament analog to the Old Testament severity of God. Our God is severe. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. Here was the case of fornication, incest. And this was going on openly, and the whole congregation knew about it. And in verse 5, Paul says, Deliver such a one to Satan. Look at that. That's a believer. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that purpose clause, his spirit may be saved. Wow. That's the ultimate discipline upon a Christian. God doesn't mess around. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. We read this for every communion service, but again, it's sobering stuff here because it applies to all of us. Look what he says in, the, in communion service. 1 Corinthians 11, 28-32. Verse 30, for, for tonight's sake. For this reason, many among you are weak, and sick, weak means can be mental as well as physical, sick, and a number sleep. A number have died. So can God be nasty in His discipline? Yes, here is how God disciplines. And I bet you a lot of this stuff occurs and we, we kiss it off as medical. Now it's not saying that every medical problem is God's discipline. And I'll show you why not. You know, and just when we get through here. There are reasons for suffering other than direct. But... For now, just notice the severity of God. Um, we could go to other verses in that paragraph. I list them for you, but I li uh, let's turn to one I don't have listed on page 53. First Timothy 1. First Timothy 1.19. Here's what Paul's response. Now, this is a different situation. We've seen uh, Ananias and Sapphira in a situation kind of putting on the phony front. We see a case where uh, you have incest and all kinds of flagrant immorality in the Corinthian church. Now, here's a cute one. In verse 19 and 20, you have a false teacher. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So they're believers. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan so they be taught not to blaspheme. Now, their problem was a false doctrine. So, once again, 
we have Christians as believers turned over to suffering, including sickness and all the way to death. This should not surprise us knowing the God of the Old Testament kingdom because this is exactly how he treated his people then. We want to conclude tonight with that just referring to the chart on page 30 lest people draw wrong conclusions. I want to remind you that there are many reasons for suffering and you can't always go from suffering to thinking there's a problem. What happens, however, is simple test. If there is suffering, just do what 1 Corinthians 11 says. Check our hearts. Ask God to reveal to us if there's any wicked way in us. So that's a legitimate prayer. That's what Paul means when examine himself. Let every man examine himself. Do a checkout. And if there's nothing that the Holy Spirit puts on our minds, and then it's not a disciplinary issue. There's other reasons for suffering. So the chart on page 30 is just to remind us there are 11 different reasons why people suffer in the Bible, at least. Probably could, if you, you know, went through many paths, you could permutations and variations of all these. The effect of the fall, the left column is all because of us. We're directly involved in those six kinds of sufferings. And notice number five and number six. Suffering pattern number five is the fatherly chastening of believers. And we've just seen some very severe examples of that. But we didn't have time tonight to go into 1 Corinthians 3, but there would be a suffering pattern number six, denial of rewards. The rewards can be denied, and that affects our eternal status in the kingdom of God. And that is a disciplinary function. And that's also for screwing up spiritually. So... God treats us as you know, big boys and girls now. You know, we're in Christ, and there's such a thing as responsibility, and we're held accountable. Now, on the right side, just want to remind you, there are five different reasons why you can suffer. It has nothing whatsoever to do with what you did. And that's what makes life hard, because all of a sudden you get blasted off your feet, and you wonder, well, what did I do to deserve this? Nothing necessarily. In fact, it very well might be that you got blasted off your feet because God thinks you can bounce pretty well. That you're ready to take it. And that he's dumping on you for a very important reason. Other things in his kingdom. Look at those other things in those seven, five reasons. First one, an evangelistic wake-up call. Now that would be applying there to unbelievers. Now, unbelievers walk along happy, you know, dumb and happy, and all of a sudden everything goes to pot. And that's been the call. I think some of us have come to Christ that way. You know, something happened, and oh, gee, you know, it's great to look up when you're lying flat on your back. So that's that. What that's what that's talking about. But number eight, a nudge to advance spiritually, just get us out of our comfort zone to the point where, gee, maybe we should trust the Lord in this situation, and we grow. Number nine, evidence to non-Christians who may be observing you, and you don't know they're observing you. Maybe people in your family, maybe relatives, maybe people in the neighbors, maybe people at work that can see how you respond to a pressure situation and they're thinking to themselves, hey, wait a minute. Now, I don't think I could do it that way. And then they'll come and say, gee, what, you know, what's the deal? Witnessing opportunity. Number uh, ten. Another reason for suffering, we've seen that in our congregation, evidence for edifying believers. How one believer will suffer and all, the rest of us will look at that and we'll say, gee, God was faithful in um, uh, her case or his case. And so therefore, you know, gee, um, I might get into a situation like that. And I know God's history here. I've seen it. I've seen God bless so-and-so in the middle of that. So that encourages me. So that's another reason. Evidence for edifying believers. And finally, the spooky one is verse 11. That's also mentioned in the New Testament. And that is because other eyes are watching. The unseen principalities and powers are watching. And they're strange ones. There's a passage in the Bible that says when we meet together, there are unseen eyes right watching us, you know, walking around for some reason. Um, their, their angels are learning from us. You know, what, they, what can they learn from us? Well, apparently they're learning how God works. Probably learning his sense of humor and how he deals with us in all the different areas of life. But that can also be a reason for suffering. So when you put all these 11 reasons together, you really can't unravel it all. So you just have to revert in practice to, Lord, is there something in here for me to confess? Is this the hand of rod of discipline, a rod of chastisement, or is it some other reason? 
And what we have to conclude from these 11 reasons is we know enough, not exactly what each microscopic part is, but we know that God has sufficient reasons for allowing this to happen in my life. And there's 11 possibilities. So when we think, well, God, what are you doing here? Think of the 11. One, two, three, four. We check them all out. Can't be one of these 11 that he might be possibly working in this situation? Of course. So God is a reasonable God who loves us. But he also is the God of the Old Testament kingdom who means business. And he wants us to be loyal to him. And he wants that worse than our personal comfort in the moment. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you have given to us your word. You're constantly gracious to us, even when we're not gracious. You give us the word, even when our backs are turned. And we thank you for that shepherding nature of yours. Through the Savior's name, amen. Before you were a Christian, or is it because later on in the Christian life, uh, you begin to kind of phase out? It would be like Solomon. He probably lost a lot of rewards because he kind of cratered toward the end of his life. And that's why Paul says, I labor that I might not be a castaway. And people read that word castaway and they think he's talking about loss of salvation. He's not talking about loss of salvation. None of these passages are talking about loss of salvation. You can see the word saved. It's right in the text. So and so I delivered here in order that they be saved. It's as though almost God has to put us through the ringer uh, to preserve us. Um, so it's not a loss of salvation, but you do have that. Where, uh, another place you see where, besides Paul's worry about him being a castaway, is the one where Jesus talks to the churches in the book of Revelation. And he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come there and I'm going to clean you up. I mean, it's, a, it's like the IG kind of coming in and he's going to have a little inspection. And so it's, it's not to fi- put fear in because we have nothing to fear it's rather, he's just saying, um, there are consequences to disobedience. And they don't go away just because you're saved. We'll see more of that as, as time goes on here, because we're going to get into the restoration. Anything else? Any other questions? Okay.